This is an ABC podcast. Australia once had the biggest touring music festival in the world. 4.5 million tickets were sold and nearly every summer for two decades. The big day out was a rite of passage for music lovers around the country. Hi, Rebecca Huntley with you for the History Listen. And in partnership with Triple J, we're jumping headfirst into the mosh pit. For the fans and the bands, the festival was unforgettable. And for the people who created the festival, it was one hell of a ride and a gamble. In this first episode, Triple J's Gemma Pike heads back to the early 1990s and meets the two blokes who took a punt on a crazy idea, one that took on a life of its own and became the big day out. And a heads up, as you might expect, there's some colourful language and themes coming up. Stacks of green paper in his red right hand. Hey, I'm Gemma Pike. The big day out started with two blokes who took a massive punt on an idea. It was the 1980s. I was living in a squat, Surrey Street, King's Cross. I set up an office. Phone got disconnected every three months. Got it reconnected again under another name. It was how it all was then. Ken West was a music promoter in Sydney and he was working hard. At that point in time, I was a graphic artist, poster designer, poster printer, poster gluer upper, record company, manager, agent, driver, loader, everything. So I was good value for $25 a show or less, I think it was at the time. That includes the lights, because I borrowed them. Ken had been putting on some big gigs. Ramones, Deborah Harry, Nick Cave and the birthday party and the Suburban, the church. After a few years, he was ready to take his shows to the next level. So he reached out to a guy from Melbourne, the manager of Hunters and Collectors. And I got this call from him and I didn't know him. His name was Vivian Lees. But he said, why don't you come to Sydney? And uh, we wanted to come there so Ken put together some dates for us on our first visit into Sydney. It was pretty casual. We went up there, it was really exciting. We both got arrested the night before that show for putting up posters. And then we had to do penance. We had to go and clean up other bill poster sites for a day or two, it was really boring. And so that kind of created that funny rapport. And I said, you're doing a Masters in Economics and I'm the art person. You're in Melbourne, I'm in Sydney. Do you want to do some tours together? This was the beginning of a partnership that would change Australian music forever. People say to see is to believe. Then they just believe in that they can perceive. We enjoyed each other's company. He was funny. He demonstrated to me once that he was prepared to spend two hours arguing with a guy in an office furniture store about one chair to get the price right. Very uh, open person, not a bad bone in his body, good guy. By the end of the 80s, Ken West and Vivian Lees had set themselves up. Just a couple of guys bringing good live music to Australia. They were Lees and West music promoters. When the 90s kicked in, Lees and West were on a roll. They booked the Violent Femmes on their biggest Australian tour yet. Femmes bass player, Brian Ritchie, was keen. We were legends in Australia and almost considered to be Australian. So we're kind of like 
honorary Australians. Well, now I'm a real Australian. So anyway, we knew that we had a big following. But the venues they'd booked meant higher ticket prices. We knew that we had to get a mid-level band to go underneath them if we wanted to take them into bigger rooms like Horden and Festival Hall and stuff like that. So Viv and Ken started looking for a support act. They needed a band on the rise. Someone people kind of knew. Someone cool. I talked to Stephen... Pav. Stephen Pavlovic. He's also a music promoter. He'd just started bringing bands out to Australia. I was fortunate enough to um, bring out a band called Mudhoney from Seattle, who were a part of that whole sort of alternative rock scene. I remember after doing that tour, they were like, you should tour our friends Nirvana. A lot of those artists didn't really have managers or agents and it wasn't part of the big sort of music industry machine at that point. And they were like, well, here's Kurt's number and here's Chris's number. You should just call them up. Hey, do you guys want to come to Australia? Yeah, we'd love to come to Australia. Pav said, oh, I've got Nirvana out there. No, coming out. And I went, oh, okay, cool. They're good. I'd never heard of them. They agreed to do it because they had sort of grown up on the Violent Femmes and that was a point in their life and I really loved that band, you know. And that's how it was done. Nirvana would come out for their first Australian tour, playing support for the Violent Femmes. But Ken wanted more. A few years earlier, on the road in Milwaukee, Milwaukee, he'd been to a festival called Summerfest. 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 He'd never seen a lineup so diverse. Heaps of bands, different styles of music, multiple stages. It had stuck with him. By 91, it was still rattling around his head. Sometimes in life, it's a slow motion version of a critical incident. You know, the boat sinking, the cyclone coming. You just know that it's now or never. So with Summerfest in mind, Ken decided to expand the Sydney Violent Femme show. The Horton Pavilion is where he could do it. There was room for thousands. As it built, it was like there was meant to be one stage with the Horton Pavilion and then I wanted to do the skate ramp so it could have been a second stage. Ken starts inviting a who's who of the local alternative scene to play. Bands like Beasts of Bourbon, Ratcat, The Clouds, UMI and Yothu Yindi. Ken's put together a full day of live music. The Violent Femmes would headline the whole thing. Now he just needed a name. The Big Ken Fest. The working title was Ken Fest. Obviously, that was a terrible name. Ken had to come up with something that encapsulated his vision. This wasn't just another gig. He needed a name that would sum up, this was a big day of live music. Because my fear was, if I go and put the thing on and there's nobody there for half the day, it's going to be really terrible. So just a week out from launch, it became... The big day out happens next Saturday, the 25th of January, at the showgrounds. 21 bands, both Australian and overseas artists, will take to the stage. It goes all day. Viv, Ken's business partner, 50% stakeholder in the operation, had no idea how big this gig was becoming. He didn't say, Viv, you know, do you want to do, do this? He actually said... I've got a surprise for you when you come to the Sydney show. We're doing several stages and we're doing some other stuff. He didn't really tell me the extent of what he was doing. Ken's attempting something that had never been done before. And so far, it's not looking good. Ken needed a bloody miracle. 
and that's what he got. My housemate had been overseas. Former Triple J presenter Jen Oldershaw remembers where she was when she first heard Nevermind. She'd visited a bunch of record companies and she'd got this record. She put it on the stereo in the lounge room. And I remember standing in front of the stereo and just stopping in my tracks because it got to the chorus. I just went, I had that moment, that real moment, that when you hear something, you just go, oh, wow, this is amazing. By January 11 in 1992, Nevermind hit number one on the US charts. Nirvana was suddenly the biggest band in the world. And you know where they were? You're on Triple J right around the country and in the studio is Nirvana. Major levels are signing every underground band there is. There's bands that have practiced in a garage a couple times. Yeah, and it's, well, let's go to a major. You know, who wants to end up like the, you know, Rolling Stones 40th anniversary thing anyway? <laughs> you know, you don't want to make it seem like a career. By the time January came around, people were just dying to see this group live. It was the hottest ticket in town. Come as you are, as you well, there was incredible energy around the first big day out. You could kind of feel it like a vibration in wood. It blew people's minds. It's their tickets left, or could I buy a ticket, or people started ringing. And just like that, the first big day out was sold out. I think people just couldn't believe it was all happening in the same place on the same day. And then I get a phone call from the Prime Minister's personal assistant. Mrs Keating wants to take the kids to the show, but the Canberra box office is sold out. We got there early because we didn't know any better and we were super excited. People are lining up, waiting to get in, including Triple J's Jen Oldershaw. So we went there planning to see it from woe to go, from right from the first band to the last band. Nearly 10,000 fans poured into the site. Long-haired young people in their cut-off jeans, Blunt Stones and Doc Martens. And it wasn't just about the music. There was a skate ramp, dodgem cars, video games and pool tables, food stalls and bars. They just wanted to see every band. They wanted to be running around like crazy. Everyone had their guide and they circled the bands they want to see and kind of mentally went, we're going to have to leave 15 minutes ahead to get there in time to see them start and then leave 10 minutes before they finish so we can go get to the next one. It was an incredible relief. It's a chance to just totally go off for the day, as the term Australians only have going off. On three different stages, bands like Smudge, Falling Joys and You Am I get the day going. <laughs> Ken's business partner, Viv Lees, who owns half of this venture, is relaxed. I was just walking around like a punter, you know, because it was already done. Ken, on the other hand, has his first major challenge of the day. At 2pm, the beer runs out. It was a bit like a bad war zone scene. Ken has to think on his feet. 
he gets a hold of the keys to the cold room of the Sydney cricket ground next door. We borrowed eight or ten pallets of beer and brought it in on a flatbed truck right through the audience. They could have attacked the truck. Instead, they helped carry the pallets off, and then they bought it. It was so innocent and lovely. Crisis averted. The punters were looked after. The artists looked after themselves. There was no backstage. There was just the dressing room of the Horton Pavilion for 21 bands. So it was just tubs with booze and loaves of bread and a toaster and some Vegemite and some ham. That was it. The moment's here. Nirvana hit the stage. Tim Rogers from UMI was there. You know when they, you jump on a plane and they say, look for the exit? Uh, I'm kind of, I was looking for the exits, to tell you the truth, and, until they came on. And I said, well, fuck it, if I'm going to go, this is a good way to go. It was just the most intense experience. And it rained inside because there were so many people. Everyone just wanted to be there. Everyone was just crammed into this space and this band just did not stop. It seemed funny that all of this power and energy and intensity was coming out of this small pixie-ish type of fellow who, you know, wasn't really very charismatic. The big thing that really happened with Nirvana, which probably I don't know will happen again, is the ones that were most affected were like 16. Their brains exploded at 16 and there was this insatiable appetite for change. And it really did kick in around that time. It was really important. And I remember us all piling out at the end and people were just like strewn across the concrete kind of concourse outside the Horton Pavilion at that point, lying down, trying to regather themselves half-dressed and sweaty. Um, and, it, you know, people were just like, oh, wow, you know, one of those gigs that you know that you can go to your children one day and go, I was at that show. But the big day out didn't end when Nirvana left the stage. There was still hours of music to come. Ken had done it. The Big Day Out was a hit. What he actually did is he actually conceived this show, good bands, multiple stages, good food, rides, place where you can get a drink and treat people nicely. He did it and you couldn't doubt that what happened was fresh and new and, you know, worth pursuing, so get on board, Viv. <laughs> After kicking off in 92, the first five years saw the big day out become a beast, expanding from a one-day show in Sydney to a national touring festival. The second annual Big Day Out had a lineup just as dynamic as the first. Big name acts, cool bands, and artists on the rise. 
To tie it all together, Ken wanted you to feel like when you walked through the gates, you entered another world. He asked his lighting designer for help. Peter Mackay, as he was known then, um, not quite sure how he ended up with Duck Pond, but Duck Pond work. would like you to be... The ambience director. Ambience director? And he said, yeah, it's basically just... Well, it's about the ambience, isn't it? Bringing good vibrations, having fun with people, organising some parties. Duck Pond and his crew of roving street performers would go on to create the lily pad, the infamous stage where they dressed in animal costumes, blasted music from a portable sound system on top of an ironing board. No one was spending $120 to see the lily pad. That said, they were very glad that it was there. Sahara Herald. She was Ken and Viv's contact for the Brisbane music scene. In 93, they invited her to check out the Sydney show. They turned it a, a VIF, a very important freeloader. <laughs> it was probably the only time I really got to experience the show as a punter. Because not long after, Ken and Viv recruited Sahara. She managed the whole tour for the next 18 years. And we had this little office at um, the old showgrounds. We were in this little kind of bubble there, producing what seemed really small at the time, but eventually became the biggest touring festival in the world. Five years in and the big day out's grown bigger than anyone could have imagined. I've never been more exhausted in my life. It's a huge operation. Ken's in Sydney, Viv's in Melbourne, and they're both under a lot of stress. It was in my head 24-7, it was driving me slightly crazy. We loved being in the big day out, but at the same time, it was such a make or break for a lot of bands' careers to be on the show. And we had a lot of pressure on us from our friends to put their bands on. And it became something that both of us were really uncomfortable with. I don't think it's any secret that Ken and Viv had a challenging relationship. You know, they had two very different personalities and two very different skill sets and probably two very different outlooks on the world. Ken and Viv didn't see eye to eye. Often it came down to art versus commerce. There were parts of the show that Ken was very passionate about that people wouldn't necessarily be buying a ticket for. The lily pad, for example. That was stuff he was passionate about and that he fought for and sometimes quite quite literally, you know, fought with Vivian about. Because on paper, it didn't make financial sense to do those type of things. But did they add to the show? 100%. In 1996, the original Big Day Out site, Sydney Showgrounds, had been leased to Rupert Murdoch to build Fox Studios. So without a Sydney venue, we decided that the show was, you know, it was coming to an end. Welcome TV Watchers. Chabba here with you in Sydney for the last big day out. It's the big day out 97. It's the last one and it's been going for six years now. When it first started, it was just a bit of a one-off festival here. Nirvana played and then since then the Smashing Pumpkins have come. Six and out. They're most successful financially. 97 was a fitting way to end this remarkable ride. It must have been a, a month or so later, Ken and I got a phone call from the Sydney showgrounds folk asking us to go out and have a look at what they were building out at Homebush. Homebush wasn't just the new Sydney showgrounds. They were building the site of the 2000 Olympics. And as we were looking around, we both kind of had the same mindset and in the car and the, on the drive back, Ken and I both thought, 
if we don't do this, somebody else will. After a year off, the big day out returned in 99 with Hole, Regurgitator, Marilyn Manson, Super Jesus, Korn. Electronic music was booming and they booked artists like Fatboy Slim and Underworld for the Boiler Room, the stage where music fiends chewed the hours away on the dance floor. But a successful comeback was never a sure thing. The new Sydney venue needed 60,000 people to fill it. It was a real punt moving out there, whether we would keep our audience from, you know, the inner city, whether they would stick with us. They did, and the show grew. Larger crowds brought a new dynamic. When you get that many people, they're not necessarily all purely there for the music. It starts to become about an experience. For Sahara, though, the music and music fans reminded her that what they were doing meant something. The thing that would catch me off guard each year was the look of joy and anticipation on people's faces as they would come in. I remember that feeling when you'd step off the train at Sydney Olympic Park and it was just like electricity. You'd just go, ah, the day is ahead of you and, like, I can't wait and who am I going to see first? And, ah, like, everyone else was feeling it too. Lisa Ryan and her friend Jessica McCarlick had been best friends since primary school. They were both crazy about music and the 2001 Big Day Out was in their sights. My brother actually introduced me to Grinspoon. I was like, this is really cool stuff. And I remember bringing it in and Jess was just like, that was it. I just, I'll never forget her face, man. It was just, it was so cool. From then on in, it was like, oh, she had to get all the albums and she was like brushing up on all her history. <laughs> like, total music nerd. Like, I have to know everything. And Grinspoon was her ultimate, her ultimate Aussie favourite. Not long before the 2001 Big Day Out, the organisers hit a very big snag after headliners Pearl Jam pulled out at the last minute. So we were scrambling to find a headliner. And um, and we ended up with Limp Biscuit. The dollar was buying 57 cents US, so we didn't really have a lot of budget and it was probably not our favourite booking, that's for sure. No one felt like, hey, this is a great big day outfit. We didn't have that many choices. The new millennium meant the explosion of new metal, heavy bands incorporating hip-hop, industrial, funk and other styles. It was dark, it was catchy, it was everywhere. Limp Bizkit were huge at the time. They were very popular amongst a certain uh, section of our audience, but there was a dichotomy. There were people who really liked them and there were a lot of people who didn't like them. So the tickets go on sale for the 2001 Big Day Out. And, you know, we kind of squeal when we see the lineup. Of course, at that age, we always had to consult with our parents for permission and finances, I guess. 
That year I actually bought Jessica her ticket. Back in the day when you could actually go and let line up and buy a ticket. <laughs> the excitement for Jess and Lisa was even bigger this year. There was a whole group going. They'd organised who they'd see, how they'd manage set clashes. Get a drink, have a good time now. Welcome to paradise. Paradise. Lisa and Jess were ripping it up at their second big day out. We saw Powderfinger. We saw Coldplay. Uh, Ramstein uh, later in the evening. I smoked a pack of cigarettes before midday. Frenzel Rom, we both love Frenzel. That was actually my favourite memory of that day. Jess had bought an Oscar the Grouch stuffed toy at an op shop. What are you, what are you gonna do with that? And she's like, oh, I'm just gonna throw it up at Frenzel Rom. <laughs> As the sun set, anticipation was building for Limp Biscuit. Jess was always willing to like check out a band. She wouldn't be getting her money's worth if she wasn't going to check out the headliner. Look at us, you know, where we're going to rock this place. Let's turn this place upside down. And they did. Viv knew something wasn't right straight away. They're bringing over uh, unconscious people over the barrier. My memory is a lot of really angry male energy. I told him before we came, I said, put Limp Biscuit and 60,000 Aussies in one fucking place and this motherfucker's gonna go. Head of security, Jeff Gray, was right in there at the front. You know, he took a wedge of guys. They had a plan, which is just to go straight in. He would have had six or eight guys just in the audience with the people that had fallen over, you know, picking them up to get the ones on top off the ones underneath. Everybody just be patient. Things are getting a little out of hand. Step back, be very gentle with the people around. So Viv jumped up on the mic and tried to calm the crowd down. I think I said, you know, please, um, can you... Respect your fellow human being. There are some few people in trouble. Can you move front. back? And I ask you to just step back. Step back. One step, step back. back. Give the people at the front a room and a chance to get up onto their feet. My last interactions with her were in the crowded area in a mosh pit. And... I had her hand and then I let it go. So it's very hard for me. The whole incident was over in like three minutes. You're walking over to where St John's Ambulance were at the side of the stage. You know, it's just a side of mayhem, you know, with like 20 or 30 people in stretchers. Probably had about three or four ambulance transports and one person that was in very uh, bad way. Lisa was even more worried when Jess wasn't at the meeting point. When she got home, she rang Jess's parents. Jess wasn't there. 
Tens of thousands of young Australians and their parents have some sombre food for thought after the death of a 15-year-old girl who became trapped amongst a crowd of people at a rock festival. The girl had a heart attack when she became trapped among a crowd near the stage at the Sydney Big Day Out. She was my closest, bestest friend growing up and... You know, when you're younger and you just think, oh, I've got my best friend, like, I'm invincible, I'm... we'll always have each other. When she didn't come home with me that night, I just... It's a very strange and unusual pain. She's like our archetypal audience member and it kind of makes me emotional to think about it now because... That's the kind of person that we put our show on for. I can't even express the level of devastation personally and, you know, professionally. You know, the Big Day Out had been something that I was so, so proud to be a part of and to feel in any way culpable for the death of another person who was a music fan that had gone, gone out for the day with her friends and had done not one thing wrong. She was there enjoying the show. Nobody gets ready that day and thinks, oh, I might not come home. And that's exactly what happened that day. What happened next was a coronial inquest into the death of Jessica McCarlick. It went for nearly two years. While usually flanked by security guards instructed to ensure the safety of the crowd, the sheer number of people that often gather in a mosh pit makes them notoriously difficult to control. People can argue that the stage barrier design was adequate or that uh, the security weren't to blame or that um, the band weren't to blame. Now, much of the last few days is focused on whether Limp Biscuits lead singer Fred Durst was going to make an appearance in person to give evidence. We're still not quite sure if that's going to happen or not. This interview has been summoned by the court. It was a really, really ugly time. It's probably the single biggest thing that has affected this group yet. I mean, you know, it's, it's left them in tears. Uh, just don't want anyone to lose focus on the fact that this is about the security. But George McCulloch, um, on the very first day, uh, gave an interview outside the court and he was saying that really it was just a tragic accident. I fought tooth and nail for the big dog to survive because of Jessica's uh, memory. Big Day Out was Jessica, and Jessica was Big Day Out. Bernadette Young reports the investigating officer has concluded that no one involved with the festival was criminally negligent. And, you know, there was no one thing that, that caused that accident, but it most certainly did make us all reevaluate what we were doing on every level, and I'm not just meaning professionally either. We'd all been working our asses off to deliver a show that was meant to bring joy. And... Um, it didn't. While the inquest into Jessica McCarlick's death found that no one was negligent, the coroner did criticise Viv Lees and Ken West for their lack of crowd control practices. And after the events of the 2001 Big Day Out, a set of crowd safety measures was introduced by the festival organisers. This program is dedicated to the memory of Jessica McCulloch. Next time in the final episode of Inside the Big Day Out, Triple J's Gemma Pike picks up the story in the early 2000s when it was suddenly no longer the only music festival on the block 
and faced a different kind of competition, the rise of online music platforms. This series is a collaboration between ABC's Double J and The History Listen. It was produced by Gab Burke, with sound engineering from John Jacobs and Tim Jenkins. Mike Williams is the supervising producer. And if you want more music, more stories, more summer festival sweat, head over to Double J to catch the full five-part version of Inside the Big Day Out. I'm Rebecca Huntley. Catch you next time on The History Listen. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.